Let's pray. Father, you're great and gracious and abundant in kindness as evidenced by the fact that we're here and your word is open and we're expecting to hear from you. Teach us, Lord, wisdom. Apply this truth by your spirit. Um, move us closer into abiding with you in your word by letting us see your glory and majesty in it. We um, don't seek to leave this hour and any moment in your word unchanged. I know that you are making your people into the image of your son. And so my hope is that you would do that work in this hour. Forgive us, Lord, we have surely sinned. We've surely given away the flesh in both desire and deed. And we run to you to cleanse us, to forgive us, to help us turn our backs to sin and look fully into your face. And so we thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, our soon-to-be two-year-old has been on this weird kick of watching Remember the Titans. That doesn't seem like a two-year-old movie, uh, but he seems to be tuned in and quiet uh, at times when we're settling down, and so we've let him watch it. And I'm remembered again, I've seen that movie a thousand times maybe, but uh, that, that first part when they're getting ready to start football camp, and Herman Boone, the football coach, he kind of goes over the fact like if you drop a pass, you're going to run a mile. If you fumble the football, you're going to run a mile and all this sort of stuff. And in that speech, he is getting at the thought that they are seeking perfection. And all that they do, they're seeking to be perfect. And then they go try and work that out. When a human says that on a human level in a, in a, in a human industry like a football team or a company we understand that perfection will not be attained but the pursuit of perfection is actually the real goal when God says that in light of his kingdom as Jesus has just been explaining in verses 2 through 47 he actually means perfection and so as we cap off chapter 5 after a few months in it I hope you understand that that is the kingdom requirement. That is the kingdom characterization of God's people. And I hope you understand that you don't meet the standard. So as Jesus uh, goes deep, expands our thoughts on the law, he is revealing to us that we have to look outside of ourselves and outside of the law to find this perfection. And what he says back in verse 17 points us to the fact that he is the perfection. He is the fulfillment of the law in all cases. Yet, 
His explanation, His authority over and through the law, His expansion on how we understand it, is the standard to which we are to live, to look to. And the hard part of chapter 5 has come towards the end here. We can all agree that anger and lust and divorce and lying and, and retaliation is bad. But when he alerts us to what perfect love looks like, especially in a fallen world, in a sinful context, we have a little bit more trouble. Because, as the Pharisees and the Jews had in their thinking, love goes beyond our neighbor. It certainly is met at our neighbor, and they don't have a great understanding of who their neighbor is. But love transcends that because it goes even to our enemy. And if God is perfect, and if God loves his enemy, because you and I, uh, by nature children of wrath, have at one point in time, or maybe you still are, an enemy of God, if, if we have known his love that has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, then he is calling us to model and to walk in that sort of similar love. And you and I, by nature, have a problem with that. Even if we understand it, even if we know it, even if at times we have walked in it, it's not ever the easy thing for us to do. Which requires, I'll go ahead and give you the solution to this, requires you to consistently and constantly reflect on the gospel. The gospel is always the answer. Because as you daily meditate on what that is and how that was directly applied to you, then you're better oriented to love your enemy in light of Jesus' love for his enemy. So certainly this is uncomfortable for the Jews, and it's still even uncomfortable for people in Christ's church. But you have to think about who is the exemplary figure who shows us this kind of love. And you have to always remember that that is perfect love. First John tells us that perfect love casts out fear. Fear of what? Being rejected, being despised, being ridiculed, being hurt physically and emotionally. And perfect love reaches out with mercy and grace. So if perfection is the standard of the kingdom, and if this is what perfect love looks like in the kingdom, then you and I move in that direction. Jesus speaks about this a little more in Luke 6, 32 through 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. 
and you'll be the sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So we're not looking at how we're going to fulfill the perfection of the law. We're looking to the, to the person who actually did that, does that, and He calls us to follow Him in that way. And it's called sanctification. You're growing in holiness, you're growing in Christ-likeness, and you're not attaining it here, but glory is promised to you, according to Romans 8, and that golden chain there that tells us that we have been glorified in the past tense because it's sure, because Philippians tells us that he who started or began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. So we follow God as he's merciful now. We follow him as he is kind and ungrateful even to the evil, and we walk in perfection in that way. And we get really uncomfortable when we talk about this because we don't like it. We like justice for those who do wrong to us. And sometimes love and grace and mercy doesn't look like justice. Except you have the cross, right? You have the cross, which is God meeting out his perfect punishment and wrath for sin. And you have the promise of the great day of the Lord that is coming when he will separate the wheat and the tares, when he will punish the evildoer and gather into his barn those that are his. So one way or another, you have a commitment from God to justice to punish sin. It's either going to be on Jesus or it's going to be on you. So in verse 46 of Matthew chapter 5, it reads, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If love, as we just read in Luke 6 and here then in Matthew 5, if love is only expressed in response to love, then we are not sons of the Most High. Period. If, if, if your love does not transcend that reciprocal nature to give back what's been given to you, if, if, if your love is not benevolent and kind, if it's not an initiating type of love to those that don't deserve it, then you're not a son or daughter of the Most High. Period. That would indicate that you don't know what His love is like. Because if he loves you, he is doing that very thing. He is loving an enemy. He is loving a vile creature who does not deserve any ounce of his love. As a, as a matter of practical application, I would instruct you or encourage you that when you pray to orient yourself as an undeserving recipient of grace and this moment of interaction and supplication and intercession with God is based solely on His kindness, His unmerited favor towards you. That will bring you into the right spirit of prayer. And guess what? Since He's God, He gets to define love. Because He is love. 
1 John 4, 16, so we have come to know and to believe that love, the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Going back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 46 here, he uses tax collectors in this example because they're thought of as traitors and backstabbers and having no morals whatsoever. They're selling out their neighbors and their people and their brothers for profit to the enemy. So people look at tax collectors as having no moral compass, having no uh, understanding of what good is. And Jesus says, actually, they're even capable of reciprocal love. In the course of existing in the fallen nature and interacting with people on that level, even the, the worst of sinners, even the most vile, can give love back to those who love them. So if you can do that, you really haven't risen above uh, the sin nature of man. So therefore, love has to look different than that. Has to reach another depth, another level. Godly love transcends, rises above, changes the thought of, completely turns it around, transcends the fallen nature and confronts it. Because he's ending the Sermon on the Mount here by explaining that to us. Just when we thought, like, maybe we could get close to living in the perfection of the kingdom, which would be absurd of us to think that, he completely ruins it here. He's also calling for perfect kindness. Verse 47, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So he's really hitting them below the belt, right? He's saying the kind of love and kindness you're showing people is the very same as the tax collectors and the Gentiles. And if you want to rile up a crowd of, of uh, Jews, that's a good way to do it. It's not his intention. He's just revealing to them what's really going on in their hearts. But what he's talking about here in verses 47 is if we're actually acknowledging and valuing the existence of everyone created in the image of God, and not only those who agree with us. Again, are we children of the Most High? Are we able to express warm greetings, kindness, benevolence, gentleness, forgiveness to even those that aren't of the household of faith. It really boils down to if you're concerned about your fellow man at all, no matter who they are. We want to be people that are characterized by kindness to everybody. It's, it's really disheartening and contrary to the gospel when you when you do not know or bless with a greeting your fellow man. Everybody you encounter has value. Simply because they were created in the image of God. And you don't understand the full reason why they exist. You only should understand that they exist because God made them and knit them together in their mother's womb. 
just like you. You can't see the full purpose for their life. You can't see uh, the ends and the fruit to which they will live, to which God will uh, unveil their story. So you respond to them in the way that God does. Kindness, patience, mercy. We are called as believers to show, show significantly greater love and kindness than what is common in the world. It's always fun to find kind of the believers in disguise. If you're at a restaurant, if you're at a hotel, I don't know, wherever you guys, if you're at the store, and if you see a particular kind of kindness, a kind of kindness that makes you think of Christ, a gentleness, a humility, a genuine interest in the, in the goodwill of that person that you're interacting with, because that mirrors and, and alerts you to the characteristics of somebody that you know and love, Jesus. And so maybe you approach that person and you say, hey, you believer. And it's always fun when they respond in the positive. And you can get to know a fellow brother and sister just by how they reflect Christ. That's a common language across the world. You can find your brothers and sisters by these characteristics. There's an interesting part of that high priestly prayer that Jesus gives as he is soon to be at the cross. John 17 is worth much meditation, as most of you know. But I want to look at what Jesus is asking for here in this prayer so that we'll understand there is a great purpose for us to be here Therefore, our kindness and our love is so crucial because he desires for us to be here for now. John 17, 14 through 20. I have given them your word, Jesus says, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now I want you to notice how interesting verse 15 is. We would assume that as Jesus has um, saved and is creating uh, people for himself, a righteous congregation, that as soon as he has won and applied righteousness to them in their account, that he would take us to where he is and we would go on with eternity. However, he's asking in verse 15 that the Father does not take us out of the world, but that he leaves us only to keep us from the evil one. And verse 20 that you see on the screen there, he's not asking for us only, but those who are going to believe in him through their word, which would mean 
you and I, hopefully. So what he's asking is that we would be left, and, and this is played out throughout the rest of the New Testament, we would be left as ambassadors for Christ. We would be left as those who have been born again and now exist as those created in his image. That is Jesus. And the world is supposed to see him through us. And the constant thought, especially through Paul's epistles, is that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. That the source of our love and our kindness is not that we're such great moral people, but that the love of Christ has shown in our hearts. And that's the reason that you are to give for the hope that lies within you. 1 Peter 3. The real answer, the real apologetic to defend your faith is that anything good you see in me um, uh, began and starts and is founded in God. And he has made me to know him, and so that's what you're seeing. I can take no credit for everything good that I do. I can take all the credit for everything bad I do. But anything good or Christ-like you see in me is Christ. Therefore glorify God. That's the justice. And he's using this phrase of the world a lot, right? I'm going to look at that for a minute. Because we're, we're trying to transcend worldliness and the flesh. So let's listen to Paul explain this to the Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You see what Paul's just explaining? We're not of the world, so we're called to pray for enemies, bless those who persecute us, to show them kindness, benevolence. We're hoping to show them Christ. When you're in the household of faith, you come in and you have this righteousness, you have the power of the Spirit of God, and you are hopefully being discipled or made a learner of Christ, and so you are supposed to know these things. But when you're in the church and you're characterized more so as a person of the world in the way that the world exists, and not as those as part of the kingdom, then that's a problem. But Jesus prayed that we would stay in the world, protected from the evil one, not be of the world. That we could relate to those outsiders with, with the love of God, the kindness of God, but that in the church we're pursuing holiness. We've been brought into that. He's creating a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God is going to dwell in the midst of not unclean people, but clean people. And yes, Jesus gives that to us. Jesus does that, but it's being worked out right now. Paul makes very clear that those who have been brought into the church have no pass when it comes to sin. 
Just because we understand grace, just because we understand that, that when we do sin, we can run to God and he will forgive us. He's faithful and just to do so. Uh, just because we know that doesn't mean that we have a license to sin. Paul says, by no means, emphasis added. We understand what it cost to bring us in. And so we don't seek to spill more blood on that sufficient payment. We seek to follow Christ. And it's not going to be perfect, but that's going to be the direction. But the world doesn't know that. They don't have that. You know, we get really bent out of shape because our culture is doing what they're doing. And yeah, of course it's concerning because it alerts us to the fact that they don't know the holiness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So our goal then is what? For them to know that. How are they going to know that? The proclamation of the gospel through word and through deed, love and kindness, while maintaining our direction towards perfect holiness. So that we're not trying to look like them to win them, but we're living differently than them with an open invitation for them to come in to the same path. We're not trying to win them to more of the same that they're walking in. We're trying to win them into something different. We just finished that fighter verse section in Romans 12 that communicates kindness towards enemies and outsiders. In Romans 12 and verse 14, we're told to bless those who persecute us. We're, we're told, told to associate with the lowly. We're told to repay no one for evil, evil for evil. We're told to, as far as possible, as much as it depends on us, live peaceably with all. We're told if our enemy's hungry, to feed them. We're told to overcome evil with good. That is perfect. So the result of verses 2 through 47 of Matthew 5 is that you must be perfect. You must. Verse 48 of Matthew 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a requirement for the kingdom. Righteousness is fulfilling the law and exceeding human righteousness that we have seen and heard. The scribes and Pharisees weren't close. Externally, they're a lot closer than you and I would be. But internally, they were just as dead as you and I. So you have to come to the end of yourself by the end of chapter 5. You have to come to the fact that, whew, I don't, I can't. That's just not possible. Which leaves you only to cry out for mercy if you haven't received it and grace. If you have received it, this is the line. Follow. So you'll always be able to tell that you're not him. 
In other words, you're not Jesus. You're, you're not the Holy One. But he's not asking you to be. He's asking you to look to him, to follow him as he makes you like him, but you'll never be him. Spurgeon says it this way, The fact that perfection is beyond our reach should never diminish the fervor or our desire after it. The, the uh, supernatural, amazing transformation that takes place through salvation is that now your desires are different than they were before. Right? Like, I could spend all day telling you what my desires were before Christ. And after salvation, now what the desires are. That doesn't mean you're still not going to battle the flesh and its desires. But it means now, uh, imprinted on your heart is a desire for things that you would have given no thought to before. How'd that take place? Jesus entered in. That's, that's why he tells Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. Like, <laughs> we have to replace this. You have to come out a new creation. That's why... In Jeremiah 31, as, as God proclaims what the new covenant's going to be, it's going to be him writing the law on our hearts. And the law is good. The law communicates the perfection of God and the righteousness of his kingdom. So if he puts that on our hearts, that means that there's a desire. A desire for these things. Not simply an outward obedience but an actual desire. And then as Jesus expands on what the law is, we, we, we see more of what those desires actually look like. Not simply to, to keep from cheating on our spouse, but to actually keep our eyes focused on them as the object of that kind of intimate love. And our goal is not simply to not kill anybody but to actually bless those who persecute us and have mercy. Our goal is not simply to not do evil to our brother, but to actually work for their good. In Paul's and, and, and Peter's letters, there's an idea of maturity. And we don't often associate maturity with perfection, but I think in the Greek, uh, you have synonyms there with perfection and maturity. And here's what I mean. Paul says in Colossians 1, 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, if, if perfection is not synonymous with maturity, then Paul's presenting people to Christ that are imperfect. That is not what God will have for his son. Later on in Colossians, uh, especially chapter 3, we're told that he's going to present a spotless, blameless people. So maturity has to be synonymous 
with perfection. So the workings of Paul, the workings of Peter, the workings of Timothy and Titus and yours truly are that you would be presented to Christ perfect. I'm not going to get you there on this side of things because it's only until the other side of things that you get a full view of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, you're perfect. He will make you glorified by the unveiling in both body, soul, and spirit of who He is before you. That's why we call it glory, reaching glory. His glory will perfect you in an instant. Until then, we're working to that point. And then you die and are promoted to that. But until that point, we're going to work there. Colossians 4.12, uh, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This is what Paul wants for the people of God. Moving towards perfection. Maturity. Growing up fully. As you've been born again in Christ, you go from a babe who is nursing on spiritual milk to a full-grown, faith-spirit-filled believer. Fully matured into the image of God. Understanding the will of God. God and living it, existing in it completely. Peter quotes the scriptures here, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are in a state of severe misunderstanding in the church at large when it comes to holiness. We're not talking about legalism that is trying to live up to the letter of the law uh, from our externals. We're, we're talking about a love and desire for God that calls you to follow Him and abandon your flesh with humbleness and gentleness and joy and peace, those things characterize a holy life. And a holy life is not devoid of those things. It's not a lifeless following of the law. It is a spirit-filled, joy-filled, as Jesus asked that our joy would be made full in John 17, life lived in his footsteps. I often hear this argument, and it just irritates the stuffing out of me. The, the, we, we can't hold anybody to this standard because grace, grace, grace here and grace here. You know, if it, if it weren't for grace, then I wouldn't be here. And if it weren't for grace, then you wouldn't let me in the church and all this sort of stuff. We have a severe misunderstanding of what grace is. The grace of God is transformative. The grace of God brings us into holiness. The grace of God is unwarranted and unmerited, and I will agree all day long on that level. But now 
We are brought in to not abuse the grace, but to live in light of the grace. And we read earlier how, how Paul viewed how we dealt with this in the church. We hold the line. We maintain the standard. And I can work with you all day long with you sinning and falling down if there is an evident move towards holiness. But if you're not even moving in that direction, then I'm not called to cast my pearls before swine. If you want nothing to do with what it looks like to follow Jesus and to be made in his image, then I'm not going to waste my time. But if, if this is your desire, if your desire is for him and to know him and to abide with him, and if you fall and stumble, I will be with you every step of the way. God is bearing with you. I will bear with you. We're going to get there. But there has to be that holy desire and that understanding that you just can't use grace for every excuse to sin. An old Puritan says it this way, Stephen Sharnock, holiness is the glory of every perfection in the Godhead. In other words, when you view the Trinity in the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everything you see them do and every, every, every word you hear them say is perfection. And that perfection is holiness. Because the Godhead exists before time, during time, and after time, for all time, in holiness. This is why you hear the angels proclaiming the perfection of God by thrice repeating, holy, holy, holy. You know, Peter said uh, God's creating a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we have this talk about holiness, but when the angels, those, those heavenly beings who exist in the presence of God, when they are looking at him and repeating holy, holy three times, they are communicating to us that the Godhead is perfectly holy. Revelation 4, 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It is irrefutable and it will be undeniable by every single living creature on the great day in the second coming of our Lord that he is holy, holy, holy. He is perfect in all aspects of his being, perfect in all aspects of his righteousness and his glory is completely perfect and holy. The perfection and holiness that the law of God communicates is not found in the law. It's found in Jesus, who fulfills the law. He wrote it. He's the source. And this chapter tells us to look to something outside of ourselves and beyond the law. You understand that the Pharisees were teaching Israel just to look at the law? And you know how 
much of a tunnel vision you can get when they just are proclaiming the letter of the law and not the author of it? It becomes really systematic and what we call legalistic. Therefore, your only hope for the kingdom standard of perfection is Jesus. The law is a mirror into your soul and into your nature, into your flesh. It is our guardian, Galatians tells us. It, it shows us righteousness. But Jesus is the perfection. Therefore, pursuing righteousness or pursuing perfection, church, this is really important, is pursuing Jesus. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is the one whose image we're created in. That's why we must learn Jesus. Discipleship. Disciples are literally learners. In the Great Commission, we are told to make learners. The lawful requirement to enter the kingdom has been fulfilled by and in Jesus. We now therefore walk in that, displaying that his righteousness and spirit has been given to us, Born again with a new heart and spirit filled. Therefore, holiness and righteousness can actually happen in your life. Not all the time. And not quite yet perfectly. Because 1 Corinthians 13 relates to us that we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. What's that talking about? Well, he's talking about Jesus. That's, uh, and that's it, folks. That, that's why the goal now, or, or the focus now, and the focus in eternity is looking at him. That's why, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is laboring to blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. So if you want to walk in holiness, look at Jesus, follow him, not just as a moral example, but as your king, as your Lord, as your savior, as your prize, as your hope, as your life. I have almost five children, and I just got tired saying that. And I have a, a beautiful wife. But the greatest thought and glorious picture in my mind is not at each of their arrivals, whether it's my wife coming down the aisle or there's babies being born. It is at the thought of seeing Jesus. He is greater than all that. And he said, if you don't love me more than these, then you're not worthy of me. So, you know, I, I beg you, I plead with you with tears, I pray for you and myself that we would see him. He is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. The law, the prophets, the wisdom literature, 
the Psalms. It's all about Him. So whatever we do here in making learners, all you who teach, all you who volunteer at VBS, all you who shepherd the little ones in class, all you who fill the pulpit for me, all you who do men's studies and women's studies, please point to Jesus. And then you'll see a group of people walking in holiness because they'll be following him. So I pray that you'd respond to him now and then we'll stand and sing together.